afternoon live from London, a pivotal week for Brexit. I'm Richard Quest. Julia's off today and here's what you need to know. The crucial week as the Queen delivers the UK government's speech. Britain wants to see and waits to see if a Brexit deal can be delivered. On trade, a done deal. Futures are falling amid fears. A China trade deal is far from sewn up. And Libra, it remains in the lurch. Cracks in the digital currency coalition. Put it all together. It's Monday, and this is First Move. to you. Welcome. This is First Move as we start a new week. Glad to have you. This is the markets we need to take attention to. Futures are pointing to a lower Wall Street open with reports saying China wants a fresh round of talks before signing the first phase of the US-China trade deal. That would be a major difference of opinion. The Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin says today work still needs to be done on the deal. Exactly how far it is holding together is not very clear. And Mnuchin is stressing the two sides have a fundamental agreement in place. But what is that agreement and will it hold water? The president calls the deal very substantial on Friday. Morgan Stanley calls it an uncertain arrangement. It says new tariff hikes cannot be ruled out. Whilst China's released a weak import and export numbers, that's evidence the trade conflict is hitting the Chinese particularly hard. However, optimism on trade helped propel stocks higher last week. All the major averages rose above 1% on Friday. The Dow and the S&P finished the week higher, and that's the first weekly rise so far this month. Now, to the, to the earnings season. Third quarter earnings begin to take centre stage on Wall Street as we wend our way through Monday, with the major banks beginning to report their earnings on Tuesday. Brexit negotiations also drive sentiment. The pound is lower, just a tad or so, after its best week of gains in some three years, looking at 125.63. And there is, of course, the Brussels summit, uh, the European Council in Brussels. That is going to be where all attention is paid. So to Brexit and what actually happened in the UK today, today's drivers. In London, the Queen has opened Parliament. It was a speech that outlined UK government's policy agenda. And at its heart is this promise from her. My government's priority has always been to secure the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union on the 31st of October. My government intends to work towards a new partnership with the European Union based on free trade and friendly cooperation. Two weeks to go before the October the 31st deadline. Uh, Nick Robertson is with me at Westminster. Nick, together we heard what the Queen's uh, ha had to say. And it's a domestic agenda, but it really doesn't mask the fact that Brexit this week's summit is going to be the key event. Yes, I mean, there are a lot of pomp and circumstance and an important message, of course, for the government. But the reality is that the real political football is now being played out in Brussels in those very secret negotiations, technical negotiations between the British negotiators and the European Union negotiators headed by Michel Barnier. And Barnier, when he briefed EU ambassadors over the weekend, clearly indicated that it is still a tough 
negotiation uh, process, that it is still um, not within sight that there's a deal. Both sides have said that, they, that there's an aspiration that they will get a deal. But the stumbling block over Northern Ireland being in the European Customs Union or in the, in the United Kingdom Customs Union or some variant between still seems to be the tough issue that's open for negotiation. So not clear come Wednesday whether the British Prime Minister will have the bones or the semblance of a structure of a deal to have the EU leaders at their summit at the end of the week sign off on and then for him to bring back here, Richard. But no deal. Is it off the table, bearing in mind, uh, and I've been banging on about this for hours this today, is it off the table, bearing in mind the Ben Act will require an extension from the Prime Minister if no deal has been arranged? There is an understanding among some MPs in the Conservative Party that there are a number of ways, and we heard one uh, MP, Conservative MP outlining that there were three ways when he was speaking with you earlier, but that he wouldn't um, articulate these three avenues uh, open to frustrate the Ben Act and even dodge around it. He said because obviously the Conservatives' political opponents would then seize upon those details to find a way to shut it down. So um, there does seem to be um, an understanding that there is a way to avoid uh, going back for Boris Johnson to avoid going back to European Union and asking for a, a three-month extension. Whether or not those w those avenues will be frustrated isn't clear, and they certainly would appear, from our understanding, at the moment to be against the law. But he has said that he will abide by the law. We just don't know how uh, Boris Johnson and his party, right. if they so choose, will decide to frustrate it. And a UK election when? Sorry, Richard, I didn't hear you. Say that again, please. I do beg your pardon, Nick. A UK election, when is that likely? Uh, before Christmas, that seems to be the best uh, expectation at the moment. Quite simply, if the Ben Act is acted upon and the extension, the Prime Minister gets the extension, that's really believed to be the threshold, the trigger for the Labour Party to follow through uh, a call for a vote of no confidence in the government, which would trigger an election. The Prime Minister has been asking for it. The Labour Party has been shirking it, saying it wants to, wants to make sure that that extension is enshrined. So before Christmas is the expectation, and to that point, much of what we heard in the Queen's speech today, the social agenda, the security agenda uh, that was laid out by the, uh, by the Queen for the Prime Minister, um, that's really what the Prime Minister will be campaigning on. Nick Robertson, Nick Robertson in, uh, to Westminster, thank you. The words candid, effective and constructive, those are the ones being used by China to describe the latest trade talks with the United States. Asian markets were higher. There are, however, reports that suggest China wants more clarity before signing on. After President Trump touted phase one, here's what the U.S. Treasury Stephen Mnuchin said earlier. I wouldn't pay too much attention to all the daily headlines that speculate things one way or another. What I will tell you is we made substantial progress last week in the negotiations. We have a fundamental agreement that is subject to documentation, and there's a lot of work to be done on that front. But it includes intellectual property rights. It includes financial services. It includes currency and foreign exchange. And it also includes very significant structural issues in agriculture. 
David Carver joins me from Shenzhen in China. What is the what are the Chinese waiting for? This idea that somehow they will delay signing this until there's progress on the next phase. What's actually being said? I think as of now, Richard, what, what is the sense of uncertainty that surrounds anything that as of this point has to do with the Trump administration? From China's perspective, it's not that they don't see this as a positive. In fact, they characterize this likewise as substantial progress. Interesting to note, they don't say what President Trump says as a very substantial phase one deal. They don't use that word deal. They call it progress. And they know from past dealings that things can change very quickly with this administration. So it's a cautious optimism that they're going into this one with. But they also need this deal to come through. So this is not just the U.S. that would be benefiting from this. The economy here has been taking a hit. Even talking to folks who are reluctant to make big consumer purchases. When you look at the pork crisis, that's been huge and, and really decimated a third of China's pork, the main staple meat here. And so they're going to benefit from this surge of imports of 40 to 50 billion dollars, as President Trump has characterized it, as much perhaps as the U.S. would. And if you look at what the commentators are saying, does this deal at least start to pry open the Chinese economy in the way the U.S. has said? Or is it really just a buy some more, you know, a, a fiddle around with the currency a bit, buy some more agriculture, keep the Americans happy? I think as of now, they're looking at this from the China perspective as, as certainly a positive. They, they do see this as leading to potential progress, but they don't characterize it nearly as positively as President Trump has come out to say it is. In fact, we, we took the claim that President Trump put out on Twitter saying that the agricultural purchases have started already, are currently underway. And we brought that to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We wanted to get official comment on that. They wouldn't even go there. They deferred it to the Commerce Department, the Commerce Department not even addressing it. So they want to keep this for now still back-channeled, still out of the headlines. They've seen things fall apart in the past. And so what makes this deal different? That was a question that was posed to President Trump in the Oval Office on Friday. And if you listen to the raw of that conversation, I sat through that 30-minute conversation listening to the back and forth. And it was U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, along with Secretary Mnuchin, who weighed in saying that this one is different because of the structure and the framework that is in place. They have, in their mind, dispute settlements that will allow some of the smaller details that cannot be agreed upon going into this to then be discussed at lower levels to be figured out solved before having to rise all the way up to the minister level and further delay this progress. So that's what they characterize as being different from past deals and negotiations and hence being a positive going into this. But the timeline here still remains uncertain. Richard, we're talking three, four, five weeks. Those are the president's words. He says maybe it'll happen in Chile when he meets with President Xi Jinping for the APEC summit. That's possible given that's kind of neutral ground. It's neither of their countries and it perhaps would be the best backdrop for this. David Carver in uh, Shenzhen in China. Thank you, sir. Now, Facebook's cryptocurrency Libra is in the balance as the tech giant meets it with backers on Monday. Head of the Global Financial Stability Board is warning of hosts of challenges posed by the digital coin. Major payment companies like MasterCard and Visa have withdrawn their support. Claire Sebastian is with me. It was always going to be difficult, but why are they all jumping ship? As far as I can see, there's no new problems. It's only the same problems that have become crystal clear. 
The same problems, but those same problems, Richard, are mounting, and that is the regulatory scrutiny that this project is facing. It's, uh, you know, been, uh, there was a joint statement uh, back in September from France and Germany saying they wanted to block it. The House Financial Services Committee wants to hold hearings. The Federal Reserve is looking into it. And then we get this letter from Randall Quiles, who's the head of the Financial Stability Board, that international body uh, that monitors the financial system, uh, talking about a host of challenges and that they're looking into the need to fill regulatory gaps. Uh, so Visa, MasterCard, eBay, Stripe, pretty much all the big payment companies uh, that had partnered or had expressed an interest in partnering with Facebook on this are out. Visa said uh, that they are they're still evaluating this, but they're looking at a number of factors, including the association's ability to fully satisfy all requisite regulatory expectations. So clearly the regulatory issues are playing a role but in this. Uh, but Libra, Calibra remains, uh, Richard, defiant, uh, and, and they're pushing ahead with this. Claire, but, but, but surely... These issues, regulatory issues, they were always going to be there. I mean, it does strike me that these other companies, uh, I mean, what did they think was going to happen when they signed on? Th their experts told them what the regulatory issues were going to be, and, they've and those issues have arrived and need to be solved. Doesn't it seem a bit, like, a bit weird just to be jumping ship because the going's got tough? Well, I mean, I think certainly, Richard, you could have seen this coming. And Facebook said when they launched the white paper for this project back in June that, you know, we're not ready for, for, for launch yet. There's still a lot of things to be worked out. Uh, we're doing this early because we want to start the conversation and have it publicly. I think to an extent that has backfired because we're also in this moment, Richard, where there's this backlash against these big tech companies. But this is these, these companies pulling out, Richard, is a big setback for Facebook because of the uphill climb they face uh, when building trust towards this project. The answer that they've constantly given uh, as they've been questioned on, on why people should trust uh, their financial inf information to a company that has such a patchy track record when it comes to handling user data is that they're not just trusting Facebook, they're trusting this coalition uh, of all of these other partners. So they're going into this meeting today, Richard, uh, where they're supposed to be uh, finalising some of the early members uh, of the Libra Association, really kind of on the back foot, at least in how, how this project is being perceived. Claire Sebastian, keep watching, and as that meeting progresses, come back and report more from us to us about it. Now, to the stories that are making headlines around the world. The US President's top former Russia advisor, Fiona Hill, is set to testify on Capitol Hill. She's arriving for her testimony, as she did just a few moments ago, and the first of a number of witnesses to appear this week, including Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU. It's his text messages about Ukraine that are central to the Democrats' impeachment inquiry. Suzanne Malvo is in Washington. Are they just going around the same areas about who said what, where, when, why over these texts and the president's uh, Ukraine conversation? or is this now starting to widen out to other areas that will be crucial? Well, there's one window that is going to be crucial here, and that is the window of time uh, between the, the text message in which one of the U.S. diplomats said, uh, I think this is crazy that you've got this exchange, if you will, for um, the aid going to Ukraine and this delay and linking that to a political favor. And then you had Sunland jump in, but five hours later saying, no, 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 no quid pro quo here. What happened in that time period? Who, who actually had conversations? 
allegations about how that was actually uh, framed. And so that's one of the new areas. But you bring up a very good point, Richard, which is they're also just going through some of the same material that they already have to kind of flesh this out and give it larger context. So when you look at somebody like uh, Fiona Hill, who was the, the Russian uh, advisor at the National Security Council, uh, she actually left her post a week before President Trump's critical phone call with the Ukrainian president, and then she left the administration altogether in August. So she is very um, uh, able to speak freely and has no constraints whatsoever when she goes before the committees here. And they're very excited about that possibility. But what Democrats want to know is um, during that period, during that process, what would have been the impact, say, of withholding military aid to Ukraine, given that Ukraine is in a proxy war with Russia? Who was part of that decision-making process to, to, to come to that conclusion or to try to do that? Was it President Trump or was it some of these backdoor shadowy figures, if you will, uh, like Rudy Giuliani, for instance? Yes, go ahead. Suzanne Marlowe on Capitol Hill. Suzanne, thank you. The Spanish Supreme Court has handed prison sentences to nine Catalan independence leaders, including the former vice president for Catalonia. He was sentenced to 13 years in prison for sedition and embezzlement of public funds. The former head of the Catalan regional government, Carlos Puigdemont, has called the sentences an outrage. The UN representative says the Ecuadorian government and indigenous groups who led anti-austerity protests have reached an agreement uh, last night on Sunday night. The government is repealing a decree that ended fuel subsidies, a measure that sparked more than 10 days of protests. And as we continue on first move, the Queen opens a new session of Parliament and the British Prime Minister starts a new week of fresh hope for a Brexit deal. And there's another deal in the work to the US and China trade talks. The phase one has been done. We need to understand what's at stake in a moment. First move today comes to you from London. I'm Richard Creston for Julia. And the US futures are lower and European stocks are falling. And there are a whole host of reasons why. But if you do take a look, you've got the FTSE, the DAX, the CAC, all lower by roughly the same amount, half a percent. And similarly, if you look at the US futures, both the narrow market through the Dow, the broader market through the S&P and the tech through the NASDAQ, again, they are down. And they're down by a similar amount uh, to each other as well. So there's a lot of commonality on losses, which suggests the, re- the same reasons are affecting all. And it's all about trade uncertainty. The reports say China wants new talks before signing any trade deal. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said today he's confident that a deal will be finalised. But the the three-session winning streak is on the line. The Dow and the S&P are still down slightly for October, the worst start to an October in a decade. And the US bond market is closed today. Of course, it's Columbus Day holiday, so there's a lot of not as much trading going on generally. Uh, Scott Wren is with me, the senior global equity strategist for Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Before we get into, before we get our hands dirty with the nitty gritty of what's going on, where do you stand on this October run for the hills? It's always horrible in October. 
Well, I think, Richard, really, if you look back in time, uh, uh, October on average, if you look from 1950, is about the middle of the pack, about a 0.9% gain. So we're not as fearful in, uh, of October as a lot of the media is and a lot of our investors are. We always get tons of questions. Uh, but in the end, in this October, you know, we think the market, the S&P 500, is going to finish the year a couple of percent higher than where it is now. So we're not, we're not sweating October right now. What do you make of the trade deal? I mean, is it just a rag bag of things just to keep everybody happy? Or do you see some real opportunities within phase one? Well, for, for us, anyway, you know, we don't think that the market needs, you know, much of a trade deal at all. I mean, something that would uh, promise not to put more tariffs on, hopefully take some tariffs off. And I think the market would be fine with that. And I think that's what, what the S&P 500, what the market is anticipating right now. And we think that's the correct thing. Although, for us, you know, we think that the solid deal, the on-paper signed deal, uh, probably out into 2020. So I, I think that uh, the talk that we had on Friday, you know, you could see where the market sold off uh, going into the close from the highs. And I think part of that was because we didn't know what was going to come out over the weekend. Uh, the press conference wasn't really finished. And so I think there is more work to do. That makes sense. Uh, as the president said, we're trying to get some things on paper here. So I, I think we're going to see a little bit of up and down here. It's probably probably going to cause some more uh, volatility day to day in the stock market. But clearly, you know, the futures aren't down very much uh, uh, here before the open. And I think the market is convinced we're going to get some kind of deal at some point. Right. But what do some kind of deal at some point, uh, so much of the next direction of interest rates from the Fed depends on answering that previous question, doesn't it? Because if you remember what the minute said and what the what Jay Powell said in his testimony, never have I seen a Fed so concerned about a trade deal. So where do you see the next, I mean, what do you see as the Fed's move next? Well, I think, you know, as far as the Fed goes, our, our call, we expect one more uh, cut really? this year. We expect another cut uh, uh, next year. So, so we do think there is going to be another cut. And I think the Fed's paying attention to that because of this international economy. And let's face it, the S&P 500 gets 40% of the revenues almost uh, from outside the country. So, you know, we need these outside countries. We need to know what's going on there, have a good feel for that. And so uh, these trade frictions have caused a lot of headwinds. I mean, you look at earnings from uh, China had decent earnings, but uh, big exporters into China like South Korea and Taiwan, uh, their earnings have been terrible the last two or three quarters. And it's mainly due to the uncertainty over this tra trade situation. Now, let's talk about that, because uh, you talk about the earnings and the, the spillover effect. If we start looking at Japan, Hong Kong, well, not so much Hong Kong, but Japan, uh, Singapore, all the other ASEAN countries that are feeling the effects of a slowing China uh, economy, they are they about to get clobbered or helped? Well, if, if uh, you know, they are definitely going to be negatively affected. And, I, and as I said, you know, I mentioned uh, South Korea and Taiwan. God, their, you know, their earnings were down 30, 40, 50 percent. And so I think any of these economies that export into China and in general export around the world, because let's face it, uh, uh, world trade uh, growth is, is, is down. The volume's down a little bit this year. Um, they're going to be hurt. And so that's something that we need to think of. That's something the Federal Reserve is thinking of. And I think that's going to play into their decision. 
great to have you, Scott, as always. Thank you so much for the common sense of what's happening in the markets. It's much appreciated. I appreciate it. Uh, particularly, of course, um, as we talk about Asia and, of course, where, of course, now it is coming up to late in the evening at 9, 9.30 at night if you're watching us in Asia. We will have the opening bell for you in a moment. Interesting day, interesting week ahead. It is going to be about trade. That's going to be the sort of driving factor. But with the markets down, they'll be looking for an element of optimism. The fresh week starts, the trading begins with the opening bell on Wall Street in just, well, I know, three and a bit minutes from now. to the races. The, the opening bell has rung and trading begins on the New York Stock Exchange and on all the major markets in New York. Uh, Europe is open, the US is open, and we are looking at a lower open on Wall Street that will kick off the trading week. It is a, it's trade uncertainties, it's the usual things, but there are some new elements even after Friday's agreement between China and the U.S., uh, there's a reports about whether China wants uh, more talks before signing. Uh, but let's the new element that's going to come onto the table this week are earnings. And we start off tomorrow with the U.S. financial giants. We're also going to get numbers from Netflix, IBM, some big names. And that's crucial because that gives us direction. Then we start to find out how much of this market is predicated on strong earnings versus trade. And the bond market is closed today. So trading is likely to be subdued. You'll often see that subdued in that and in foreign exchange, um, certainly in terms of with the bond market close. At Westminster, the British Parliament has resumed business. Within the hour, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will begin the debate on the Queen's speech that reopened Parliament a short while ago. And in it, the Prime Minister unveiled his policy. Uh, Carol Walker is with us, who uh, is our expert, of course, on UK politics. It was a very domestic speech, but what did we learn? What was new about what Boris Johnson, through the Queen, told us? Well, essentially, this was uh, the Prime Minister setting out his priorities through the guilt crusted ceremony of the state opening of parliament so the opening statement of the speech which was read out by her majesty was that the government's priority was to take the uk out of the european union on march 31st and to develop a new partnership based on free trade and friendly cooperation and an awful lot of what we saw in a total of 26 bills did relate to the Brexit process. So we're going to have a withdrawal agreement bill, although, of course, we haven't got a withdrawal agreement yet. There's going to be new bills to govern our fisheries, our agriculture, uh, in the, a new immigration system post-Brexit. But, of course, so much hinging on those talks still going on inside the EU. The other thing that Boris Johnson was really trying to do here was to reach out to voters in an election which is going to be with us within weeks saying look if we can just get brexit done we're going to put lots more money into your schools into your hospitals and we're going to be much tougher on violent criminals a, a very strong law and order slant to the speech 
Carroll, uh, is it likely that you'll get it through Parliament? It might be meaningless in terms of the, the, great, uh, the greater picture, but the inability to get a Queen's speech passed by Parliament is usually equivalent to a vote of no confidence. Well, Richard, it, it's certainly very doubtful that he will get this Queen's speech through Parliament. We have five days of debate going on uh, at the same time as those crucial negotiations over Brexit continuing in Brussels. And at the end of that, there does have to be a vote in co the Commons on the Queen's speech, which sets out the government's programme, what it wants to achieve in power. Normally, as you say, if that was to be voted down, that would be a case for the Prime Minister to resign and we'd have a general election. But we know that bizarrely at the moment, we have a government that actually wants to have a general election and an opposition that's not prepared to allow him to do that until he has requested a delay to that Brexit deadline due on October the 31st. And I should say, after all the pomp and ceremony and dignity this morning, now that Her Majesty has moved on, the demonstrators are back with us down here, Richard. I know, I, I, it's, I, it, it was quite peaceful. All we had this morning outside there was the Welsh Guards. Now you've got the protesters uh, back, not as melodic as the band of the Welsh Guards. Uh, Carol, finally, briefly, um, does there, is there a feeling that this is all just going in circles, that what's actually happening in the chamber doesn't really matter? Because until there is fresh meat from Brussels for everybody to chew on, it, it's just, tread, to mix the metaphors, treading water. There is a somewhat unreal air to the proceedings today, Richard. Normally we have a Queen's speech after a new government has been elected. We are now having one within what is likely to be weeks, if not perhaps a few months, until we get to a general election. And there's almost no one here at Westminster who thinks that much of this law that was announced today is actually going to become legally binding, actually be taken through Parliament before that general election. So. We'll see the raw politics resume when the Prime Minister gets on his feet in the next uh, half an hour or so. Um, but he's going to use this opportunity to make political points, you can be sure, uh, at the same time as he knows that so much now depends on whether he can get a deal in Brussels. Carol, good to see you. Thank you, as always. Investors are watching US China trade talks. Beijing, according to some reports, wants more clarity before signing a deal. It follows President Trump touting a substantial phase one agreement. The Chinese Vice Premier has described negotiations as candid, effective and constructive. Ambassador Carla Hills is with me, former US Trade Representative, and certainly knows where around uh, these, these waters. Um, Ambassador, uh, the, the, uh, what do you make of this deal? Is it just a cobble together or are there real structural improvements within it um, that, that, that are worth it? There are no structural improvements. It's the first step in continued negotiations. And uh, we were all upset when in May the discussions fell apart. So we should smile that they're back together again. But really all we've talked about and is on the table is China's going to buy more agriculture, $50 billion maybe, and it's going to open its market to the financial sectors, but it already had started to doing that, and that it won't play around with its currency. 
and it hasn't done that for a period of time. But the fact that they're willing to talk and to continue to talk, I think is positive. Right, but then the even if the new tariffs are not imposed or the higher rates of tariffs, we are a long way, it would seem, from the removal of any of the existing tariffs. Absolutely. The uh, uh, fact that the hike and the October 15th tariffs will not occur has not eliminated the pain that uh, we are feeling across our economy uh, in consumers, workers, and businesses with respect to the tariffs, and is affecting our economy. We have slowed, China has slowed, and the global economy has slowed. This is a problem. And if you take the, the bigger picture, um, who is, who's got the upper hand here? Because when I read on Friday what the Chinese had agreed to, and now we hear that they may not go ahead with it until there's a phase two, one wonders whether the U.S. is just, is just being offered things to keep them quiet. I think that, uh, as I said at the beginning, this is just a first step to come back to the table and work. I'm a little bit concerned because the uh, first step has not been uh, applauded hugely in China. They've been relatively quiet. And uh, the question is, when they start putting pen to paper and put an outline together, is it going to fall apart as it did this past spring? One other area, of course, of, uh, of great importance is Europe and the question of whether the president is going to move forward with auto tariffs um, against Europe or whether going to turn up the pressure on European companies and governments. What's your feeling? Well, I certainly hope not. It's very hard to make the argument that the import of autos hurts our national security. And uh, the real pain would be aimed at our closest allies. Surely we can sit down and talk about these issues. Uh, negotiations and diplomacy have a very, very important part to play in our prosperity and security. And I think we should try to come up with strategies and implement them through diplomatic efforts. Always good to see you. Thank you, ma'am. Ambassador Carly Hills joining me uh, from Washington. We appreciate your time. Thank the global you. market movers for you. Boeing shares are trading flat. Aerospace giant says the CEO, Dennis Mullenberg, has been removed as chairman. It's designed to give him more time to focus on getting the 737 back into the air. The former GE exec, David Calhoun, takes over the Boeing chairman, Schwell. Facebook shares under pressure, a crucial week for Libra, the cryptocurrency project. Now, the Libra Association formed by Facebook is to meet for the first time today, even though there have been key defections, Visa, MasterCard. And now the G7 believe the project should not go ahead without further review. And CrowdStrike lower. Citigroup has begun coverage of the cybersecurity company and says sell, citing the intense competition in the industry. In a moment, changing alliances, a threat of potential ISIS and a resurgence, growing human suffering. The latest from northern Syria on the picture on the ground gets ever more complicated.
Kong stores, restaurants and other businesses have suffered in the four months of protests and clashes as the unrest isn't ending anytime soon. Some protesters are now accusing businesses of being blue or pro-government and so-called blue businesses are being deliberately targeted. Christy Lustout shows us what's at stake. A city plunged in protest is struggling to stay in business. Time and time again, some of Hong Kong's busiest shopping districts have descended into chaos. The violent clashes have forced stores and restaurants to close repeatedly during four months of protests, including this famous snake soup restaurant in Causeway Bay. Regulars usually line up at the door for a taste of its Michelin-recommended dishes, but these days, it's far too easy to get a table. A number of tourists dropped due to the protests, and local people also come here less often. Since the protests kicked off in June, Lowe says business has fallen 40%. Many businesses have been forced to close early because of their proximity to flashpoints like the Legislative Council. Others have been directly targeted for their perceived allegiance to the government. Restaurants owned by Maxim's caterers, including Starbucks, have been targeted by demonstrators after the founder's daughter publicly condemned protesters as violent. On Twitter, pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong has called for a boycott of Starbucks. And protesters have spray-painted this Starbucks cafe with messages calling on more people to boycott it. Other businesses have attracted ire for their direct links to China, including branches of the Bank of China and China Construction Bank, smashed and tagged with graffiti. Demonstrators are sharing this interactive map to identify which businesses are blue or pro-government as opposed to yellow or sympathetic to the movement. Lists of yellow and blue shops are also making the rounds. They are circulated online and in the real world by activists like Emily. That's not her real name, and she wishes to remain anonymous. Boycotting these restaurants is a way for people to express their thoughts. People feel frustrated, so this is the way they choose to express it. But when violent protests paralyze the city, most Hong Kongers take heed of the police alerts sent to their mobile phones and avoid going out entirely. And that means no dining, no shopping, no local consumption. The Hong Kong government has announced that August retail sales have plunged some 23% from a year earlier. That's the worst year-on-year decline for a single month on record. Uh, the government cited subdued economic conditions as well as severe disruptions to tourism and consumption-related activities. Lo Chung-hei does not want to talk about politics, but since the start of the protest, he's had to lay off 10% of his staff. The business will be fine again, but I'm not confident that it can go back to the peak time. As hardline protesters and police battle in the streets, local businesses are caught in a political crossfire, and they are struggling to stay afloat. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. The growing concerns over the fate of ISIS prisoners in northern Syria. A Turkish defence minister says his military saw one ISIS jail he claims was being emptied by the Kurds who'd controlled the area. CNN's not been able to verify Turkey's account. That is, the Syrian government troops are joining the Kurdish-led forces in their fight against Syria.
CNN's international correspondent, Arwad Damon, is at the Turkish-Syrian border. This is exactly what everybody said was going to happen, that the ISIS alleged terrorists would somehow be released, that the Kurds would merge or at least would work with their former enemies, the Syrians, against the Turkish. Hi, Richard. A couple of things are playing out simultaneously inside Syria at the moment. There's been a lot of claims and counterclaims as to who was released from what prison and exactly how, as well as what has happened specifically in one of the camps that is housing um, a few hundred of the ISIS wives and widows, as they are called, and whether or not they have managed to escape from that camp. And then, of course, you have the dynamics that are unfolding inside the Kurds with no one left to turn to literally having to crawl on their knees back to the Syrian regime. Worth noting, though, Richard, they did not exactly fight against Damascus when the uh, revolution against uh, the regime of Bashar al-Assad began, and they always maintained loose ties with the regime. The regime always had uh, its airport that was open in Kamishli, as well as a small military presence. But both sides also were constantly talking to Russia. The Kurds were talking to Russia. The regime obviously backed by Russia, and Russia has a relationship with the Turks. What Russia is going to have to manage right now is what sort of deal can it negotiate to prevent a direct confrontation between the forces of Bashar al-Assad and those that are being backed by Turkey on the ground. That is going to be Russia's next challenge. But at the moment, Richard, Russia is emerging as something as the clear winner, at least when it comes to the geopolitical uh, spectrum here, because without right. Firing a single shot with Turkey's incursion into Syria, Russia has managed to get rid of the Americans. Our oh, Damon on the Turkish Syrian border. Ara, thank you. At this very moment, the British Prime Minister is set to defend the Queen's speech in the House of Commons, a crucial week in British politics. Critical weeks for Brexit began a short time ago with the pomp and ceremony. Her Majesty the Queen opened Parliament. It was a speech that outlined the plans of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The real focus, of course, is on Brussels, where Brexit talks are difficult and the EU's negotiations are not quite certain. Quentin Peel is with me, associate fellow at Chatham House. Um, this morning had all a bit of an unreal air about it. A, you know, a Queen's speech for a session that probably won't last that long. What's your understanding of where we stand with Brexit. Well, I think we're very close to the line, obviously, in time terms, and it looks to me as if it's a pretty hopeless task of really getting a deal across the line in the time available. Um, over the weekend, we, hear, we heard that uh, the Brussels negotiators were baffled by the British proposals as to how they want to get round the problem of uh, having no border on the island of Ireland. And uh, so I think they're great grinding through detail and a long way from the result, which has really got to be delivered by, well, at the end of Wednesday at the latest. So if they go into this summit without any real concrete proposals or, or even if they go in with the, with the scintilla of an agreement that needs fleshing out, at the end of the day, Boris Johnson still has to sign that letter if there's no deal by 11 o'clock on Saturday night. Yes, absolutely. That's what the 
the law that the British Parliament has passed requires him to do. But every day comes and he repeats that we're going to be out of the European Union with or without a deal by October the 31st. So the truth is that all the opposition parties in the British Parliament don't trust him. And Boris Johnson has no majority in the British Parliament. So he certainly seems to be in a very tight place. But one way or another, he's trying to blag his way, if you like, to no deal. And on that issue, um, the, 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 uh, the DUP will stand for what? Labour will give what? I mean, what is it? What is the key that unlocks a parliamentary majority for Boris Johnson? I think the only possible parliamentary majority for Brexit is for a soft Brexit. That's to say, pretty much like the sort of membership we have in the European Union. But that sort of Brexit is absolutely not acceptable to the very hardest of the pro-Brexiteers in Johnson's own party. And it's probably not acceptable either to the Democratic Unionists from Northern Ireland. So he has a real problem. Every time he moves towards a compromise that might be acceptable in Brussels, and might be acceptable to a majority in Parliament, he loses the hardliners <laughs> on his own side. So he's really stuck, and it's exactly where Theresa right. May was. So he's desperate to have an election. Which, of course, raises a whole host of other problems that you and I will talk about on another occasion. Quentin, it's very good to have you, as all, to make sense of it all. I do appreciate it. We, are, we do sometimes seem as if we are back to where we were, and that's because we are back to where we were. But where we were is where we are, and that's where we've got to move from. You get the idea. That's it for First Move. I'm Richard Quest. Our coverage of the Queen's Speech continues. Connect the World is next with Becky Anderson. That's after a very short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.